Katie Anything. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I am Katie Morton, licensed marriage and family therapist. I'll be walking you through some questions and answers today. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm glad that you're here. Now, today we have nine questions. A lot to get through, a lot of wonderful questions this week. If um, if you haven't heard, I have a Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash Katie Morton. If you have a question you want answered, if you want to join our live streams or join the community discord, there's extra videos every month that are released over there, all sorts of good stuff. And all of those things start at just $1. So there is something for everyone's budget. Without further ado, Let's jump into today's questions. And the first question says, sorry, I have a floof on my lip. If you're watching, you've seen me. It was bothering me. Okay, question number one says, I have a question about dissociation. Does it have to be caused by trauma or are there other things that can cause dissociation? This is a wonderful question. And I know, unfortunately, I'm saying unfortunately because I've done this and I want to apologize. I've always talked about dissociation as it relates to trauma and being triggered, flashbacks, things like that, that it gets overwhelming for our nervous system while our brain pulls a ripcord and dissociates. And for anybody who doesn't know what dissociation is, dissociation is essentially when we're out of body or out of environment. We call it depersonalization, out of body, derealization, out of environment, disorder. So a lot of people will uh, put the little acronym online, DPDR. That's what we're talking about. Now, dissociation can happen, I believe it's a spectrum, and it can get more intense depending on how often our brain and body are utilizing it, uh, maybe the depths of our trauma or dysregulation, etc. So don't judge yours based on anybody else's experience. Everyone's is valid. Now, dissociation can be caused by trauma. A traumatic experience can be overwhelming to our system, meaning our nervous system, to our brain and body. We don't know how to process it. We emotionally, it's too much, right? Everything in our body and our brain is like, wah, 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 wah. it's just too much. Whoop, it pulls the ripcord. We take a little break from reality for a minute to kind of put space between us and the event so that we can get through it. It's really adaptive. It's a coping skill. It's not, we don't want it long-term because it can make it hard to drive. We cannot remember certain things. It can be kind of scary for some people. It can feel really uncomfortable for other people, all sorts of stuff like that. But that's what it is. Now, yes, it can be caused by trauma, but it can also be caused by anything that overwhelms us. Now, I'll give a good example. Back when I was in graduate school, um, I got into a wild argument with a former friend of mine, honestly, about what I don't know. They seem to, uh, this friend and another friend seemed to be offended that me and my friend didn't want to do the same things they did. And they started shouting really loudly. And I know that I dissociated because I have no memory after she got angry. I mean, she was drunk and we weren't. It was just a complicated situation. I'm not saying I'm not to blame in some way. I still don't understand and I don't really remember. So I can't really tell you. But my friend later was like, oh yeah, she started shouting in, in them. She was telling me what happened and she's like, and you just didn't say anything. And I'm like, I don't even remember, right? Like I, boop, it was too much. You guys know I'm conflict averse. I didn't see this coming. I was kind of caught off guard and it was like, oh, it was too much for me. Boom, brain pulled the ripcord. Now that was way back, probably like 10, 15 years ago. But I, that always has stood out to me as a time when I know that I dissociated. Now, was that traumatizing? No. Was she threatening me emotionally? No, it was just too much. I was overwhelmed. I wasn't prepared. I didn't, I don't understand. 
Um, I don't like conflict. She was very aggressive, very angry. Oh, so my brain was like, yeah, we're just going to do this so you can get through. We'll figure it out, right? All that was great and fine. And it preserved me in some respects. Now, anything like that can cause us to dissociate. I've had patients go into a really intense job interview, boom, dissociate. Go in to give a presentation and they get some like maybe difficult feedback, ooh, dissociate. It all depends on our resilience or we could call it our window of tolerance. You know, we, people talk about that a lot. And what that really means is our ability to kind of weather what life is throwing our way. And everyone's is gonna be different and it can be different depending on when you ate, how well you slept, have you drank water, are you feeling connected, right? All those basic self-care things that are really important. Have we taken our medicine? All those things can weigh in to how resilient or how big our window of tolerance is going to be. And so it can vary day to day, moment to moment sometimes, but things can happen. And if it jumps us out of that window of tolerance, we can dissociate. Now, not everyone does it. Even my patients with trauma, not everyone dissociates. It's not like if we have X, we act out in Y. If we become dysregulated, we dissociate. No, everybody responds differently. But there are really anything that's overwhelming for us can cause it. Does that make sense? I try to be as thorough as possible without getting too <laughs> off topic. Um, but essentially anything that is just too much for us to process in the moment or is, is overwhelming to our system in that second, in that you know, hour or whatever kind of time period, as something's happening, whoo, our brain will pull the ripcord on reality a little bit and put a little space between us and what's going on so that we we can get through it and that we don't become, maybe it doesn't make things worse. Maybe we don't lash out or get overwhelmed. Like in my case with that friend or ex-friend really, it I think the dissociation happened so that I didn't remember the nasty thing she was like shouting about us. I still don't, again, don't remember um, and also that I didn't, I didn't fight back. I didn't yell. I didn't say anything. I was just like, kind of like shaking and numbed out. Um, and my, my other friend, my girlfriend, she was like, yeah, you just said like, okay, that's fine. We'll leave now. And that's what we did. Um, but so, you know, it, it can kind of, it's self-preservation just gets us through so we can get to the other side. And so it can happen for a lot of different reasons, but trauma being the one that I think people talk about the most, because I think there is a pretty intense correlation between the two, okay? Let's move on to question number two. This question says, hey, Katie, I hope you're well. I am, I hope you're well. This is something I've never spoken about as I'm so embarrassed. But when I was a child, like six to eight-ish, my male friend and I, same age, both consensual, I'm female, would try to have quote-unquote sex at sleepovers. It also continued with another female friend. If anyone else said this, I'd be very curious about sexual abuse. I am. However, that didn't happen to me. I didn't hit puberty early or anything like that. Also, now I could care less about sex. My partner and I only do it every once every few months, and I kind of have to force myself because it just seems like a chore. However, I will sometimes masturbate alone. I now struggle with dissociation in everyday life, and I don't remember much in general, yet alone very much at all of my childhood. That's interesting. I know this all screams trauma, but I just don't think that's the case. Now, I hear you and I I fully trust that, but I also have to be a little curious about the fact that if you don't really remember a lot of your childhood, can we actually say that nothing bad happened? Now, this could have happened in school by another kid. This could happen at a sleepover with another kid. This could have happened... Um, 
someone in your family, your family, any number of scenarios at another friend's house by their parent, a babysitter, whatever. If you don't have a lot of memory, we can't really rule that out yet. You don't think so. Fair. I get it. Okay. But let's just take in, think of being a detective, right? We're not going to make any assumptions or jump to any conclusions. We're going to look at the evidence we have and see what it kind of guides us to, right? Okay. Um, Both of my parents were very nice and I know neither of them did anything. That's wonderful. I don't remember being left with anyone who would do that. Is it possible for this not to be linked to sexual abuse? Sorry for such a long one and thank you for your time. Of course. Now, I'm suspicious still because these sleepovers, very interesting. Um, I wonder who instigated them. If you remember, I'm always curious about that. It doesn't always have to be linked to sexual abuse, but it's a pretty young age to try to have sex and to even kind of know what sex is. I mean, if you were going to quote unquote, try to have sex, there ha- one of you had to know what that was supposed to look like, or at least pretend or, try, you know, you'd heard it. There had to be something at that age, because again, we're, it's not that we can't be curious, like I show you yours, you show me mine, or like mild touching, I guess. Um, and I'll talk about this in more detail. There's another question about what's appropriate and what's not. We'll get into that. But someone saw something or had some idea whether they saw porn or got a hold of like pornographic materials in some form. Somebody abused them. I don't know. Just because we were involved in the situation doesn't mean it's it's always us that was abused before. This could have been the start of the abuse. This male friend, like you're saying it's consensual. It can't be. You're only between six and eight. And you're what you're really saying is I was a willing participant. But that, again, that childhood curiosity could have led you to say, yeah, that sounds fun. And di- I don't know. That's interesting. Weird, huh? Right? Kids are curious by nature. So I'm wondering if he was abused. And then maybe that's why you went on to do it with another female friend because now you'd been abused. I don't know. I, that kind of, I mean, I'd have to know more details and I know it's already embarrassing to share. So I understand, but like, I'd have to understand a little bit more about it because let me open this up. A member of our community had sent me, this is a while ago, this um, breakdown of research and things on essentially what's okay behavior, not okay behavior, what's abuse thing. Like they use like a traffic light, like green behaviors are like good behaviors. Amber behaviors are like, ooh, caution, perceive a caution. And red, you know, meaning that there could be some sexual abuse. We need to really look into this, right? Um, And between five and nine, just so you know, the green behaviors are feeling and touching your own genitals. So like masturbation, touching yourself, things like that curiosity about other children's genitals. Like I said, I show you yours, you show me mine. That kind of thing is very normal. Um, Curiosity about sex and relationships, like the differences between boys and girls, how sex happens, where babies come from, same-sex relationships. Then also a sense of privacy about our bodies, where we want to cover up or we're aware of what being you know, naked means. Um, Telling stories, asking questions, using swear and slang words for parts of the body, okay? That's like normal, five to nine. That's green. Now we go into amber. Questions about sexual activity, which are which persist or are repeated frequently despite an answer being given. So we're almost like preoccupied, right? We keep asking. Sexual bullying face-to-face or through text or online messaging. Engaging in mutual masturbation. That's why I want to kind of know what was going on because this curiosity about sex is very normal, but this engaging in is, you know, again, amber territory. Um, Persistent sexual images and ideas in talk, play, and art. 
use of adult slang language to discuss sex. Okay, so that we're amber. We're in the like, hmm, cautious. Let's let's think about this. Now, the red. Frequent masturbation in front of others. Sexual behavior engaging significantly younger or less able children. Doesn't sound like that happened. Forcing other children to take part in sexual activities. And I know you said that you didn't feel forced or you didn't force him. I'm just curious about that. That could, you know, that could be part of this maybe. Um, simulation of oral or penetrative sex. Wow, that word was hard for me. That is what I think was happening here. And that's a red. So I like, that's why I'm with a little caution here. And then the last is sourcing pornographic materials online. Now, obviously there's some information I don't have about this because I just have what the question is offering, but it's a little worrisome. It's definitely in that red zone. Now, I do believe that this type of behavior, because it isn't kind of the amber or red, could definitely be linked to sexual abuse. Now that could, again, be that male friend of yours. That could be what happened to him. And that's why he engaged with you in that way and your natural curiosity of being a child, you know, you engage in that behavior. Um, also, um, and the person who in our community who shared this document and this really helpful like research studies and all this stuff. Also, um, we talked a lot about the fact that in child on child sexual abuse situations, because that's what this is, by the way, the child that knows more about sex, it, that is enough power over the other child even if they're the same age that's kind of the 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 power dynamic then the child who knows more you know is like showing the other child and the other child's like this is weird i don't know huh and we you know we don't know sometimes to even say no because that's why we can't consent because we don't even understand what's happening so that's those are my thoughts that's about as much as i feel like i can offer without knowing more um, but yes, this was child on child sexual abuse we call it COCSA. Um, that's what happened. And the behaviors that you're having, the fact that you like aren't interested in sex now could be due to depression, could be if this was traumatizing. I don't know. This could be due to trauma. Um, if there was abuse that we just can't recall, could be due to that. Um, and the the masturbating alone I'm interested in and and why you find yourself engaging in that. There's nothing wrong with it. Masturbation is completely healthy. I'm just curious where that, what uh, what triggers that urge, I guess. Is this just you being a sexual being? Or is this a release? Is this a coping skill? Um, have you ever thought of trying to bring your partner into your masturbation situation and talk, you know, letting them kind of participate? Or does it have to be done alone? I have a lot of questions about this, right? Because we have to kind of, tease out why we're doing that and without judging just trying to understand being curious about our behavior right what is it about sex with your partner that isn't that enjoyable or isn't something you want to do and it feels like a chore is it the way you talk to yourself about sex do we have shame or guilt or embarrassment associated with sex we might do you think it's due to this child on child sexual abuse that you went through between you know six and eight ish be curious about those things, not judgmental. Let's just figure out where this is coming from because there's definitely something here. I don't want to jump to any conclusions, but some of the behavior is very worrying and what I would, you know, we'd categorize as like a red zone. And I forget exactly the terms. Let me tell you what they say. So amber behaviors are unusual for that particular child or young person are of pot pot uh, potential concern due to age and developmental differences. 
are of potential concern due to activity type, frequency, duration, or context in which they occur. So those are the amber ones. Remember, now this is the red is they are outside of safe and healthy behaviors. They may be excessive, secretive, compulsive, coercive, degrading, or threatening. They may involve significant age, developmental, or power differences. I know yours doesn't, but they may be of concern due to the activity type, frequency, and duration of the context in which they occur. So that just gives you an idea of kind of what we're looking at. And there, there's definitely a few ambers and a few reds in there um, based on what you told me. So I hope that helps you guys. I know I can't give like a direct answer, but that's because, you know, I'm not, I don't have all the information, but that hopefully helps you consider it for yourself. Now, there was a comment on this that also, what is developmentally normal sexual curiosity for small kids versus when to be concerned something else is going on? And that's a great thing. I'll link this article. I'm actually going to put it in there right now before I forget. I will link this article in the podcast, like in the description, um, so that you all can look through it again too, if you want, and you can read through the different ages because it goes through zero to five years of age, five to nine, nine to 13, at 13 to 17. And then obviously we're an adult, right? And so it goes through all of those to kind of better understand what are the green, the amber and the red behaviors so that instead of just thinking, oh, that's weird. My other child didn't do this or my other grandchildren or friends, kids or whatever didn't do this. Um, we can kind of see what what's normal curiosity and what's not. And so that's really, I'll, I'll link that down so you can walk through it. But like I said, I walked you through the five to nine. It's essentially, you know, we can be curious and feeling and touching our own. But if we're going to start to try to uh, force other children to participate or we're sexually bullying others, persistent, you know, seeking out uh, sexual images, things like that that's when it becomes, and using the slang terms for, you know, sex, that's all kind of that danger zone type of space. Okay. Now there was another add on and it said, I also began masturbation at a very young age, like three to four years old. When I hit puberty and all the way up to the age of 25, I remember having very violent and shocking fantasies about me being abused and raped during masturbation. Other thoughts wouldn't, you know, quote unquote work. I don't have any history of sexual abuse and I just don't know why I'd be thinking about such things and why I would like that. Where could this come from? Thank you for being amazing. Of course, um, fantasies are different than flashbacks and trauma. Now hear me out. And, and if you disagree, feel free to leave, you know, stuff in the comments, but the, we're starting with the violent or sec, you know, um, what did it say? Violent or shocking fantasies about being abused or raped during masturbation. That's the reason, you know, the SNM population, uh, I'm trying to think of what the S stands for. I'm always forgetting, but sadomasochism. So SNM is kind of like when we would derive pleasure when we are, when we're, someone's inflicting physical or psychological pain on us. Now, we could really dig into that. And I'm sure some people would say, well, that could come out of abuse. And it definitely could. But I think for some people, the there's a very close correlation between pain and pleasure. And so for a lot of people, they enjoy that. And I don't think there's anything wrong with it as long as it's consensual and safe. I'm, I'm fine with it. So I wonder if that's where this is coming from for you. The masturbation at such an early age, right? Three to four. So if we look back now, I'm going back to that chart that I, I shared the link. Um, just so you know, the chart is on page 21 of that. It's, it's a 148 page PDF. So just FYI. Um, 
But zero to five years old, holding or playing with your genitals is completely normal. Um, the attempting to touch or curiosity about other children, that's also very normal. Attempting to touch, um, you know, of adults, genitals of adults, having questions about them, being curious, um, enjoying being naked. That's why little kids run around naked all the time. Interest in body parts and what they do, playing games like doctor, nurses, um, curiosity between the, the differences between boys and girls. Now, Amber behaviors are, you know, talking about sex, using slang words that you shouldn't know at that age, really. Pulling down other children's pants and stuff like that. Preoccupation with adult sexual behavior. Um, talking about sexual activities you see on TV. And then red behaviors are simulation of sexual activity in play. Persistent attempts to touch the genitals of adults or trying to touch the genitals of other kids. Sexual behavior between young children involving penetration with objects and forcing other children to engage in sex play. Now, for you to masturbate at a young age, three to four, and hitting puberty, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um, I would be curious. You said you don't think it's abuse, but as a therapist, I would want to explore that just to be sure we're not missing something or we maybe didn't realize we don't remember a lot of our childhood because that's going to be that can be an indicator of abuse. Again, not saying it has to happen, but it's always good to check those things out first. But everything with this sounds fine. I don't think anything's wrong with you necessarily, like meaning there's no like mental illness that's causing this is what I mean by that. Prob you know, I probably could have said that better, so I apologize. But I think that this could just come from the fact that you enjoy that pain pleasure type of thing. I don't know, you know, if you've ever tried that out with a partner, a consensual safe partner, um, but that might be something that you could look into to see if that's really just kind of your kink, right? Everybody has a kink. There's no judgments. I know people think, oh, it's so taboo. People shouldn't. Well, no, everybody to their own as long as it's consensual and it's safe. Um, yeah, because I don't really see anything wrong with that. But if it bothers you and it feels like ego dystonic, meaning it just doesn't feel right with you, then that's why I would explore, like, do we think maybe something could have happened to us and we've just blocked it out? I don't know. It's okay to be a detective, be curious about it um, and see what comes up. But we could also explore this part of ourselves a little bit and it's okay to enjoy that type of thing. That's why, you know, there, I don't know, there's, I'm sure, I don't really know this for sure, but I've, I've seen it on television, which is not the best resource, but that there are like clubs and place you can go to even pay someone to like spank you or do whatever what your ever your kink is whether you want to be you know the dominate like the dominatrix the dominator or you want to be the submissive there's a lot of that and so that might be part of what turns you on and that's okay there's no judgments around that you should feel free to explore your sexuality and figure out what works for you um but i would just again the therapist to me is like i would just want to do a full inventory check into that to make sure we're not missing something here Okay. Now there was another comment on top of this. And it said, I've always wondered if my grandkids were victims of childhood sexual abuse. They both began masturbating at very young ages. I mean, before they were a year old, they were also neglected by their mother. And I wondered if it was self-soothing. My granddaughter has had UTIs since she was little also. I've heard that children that get UTIs is a result of sexual abuse. Thoughts? It can be. UTIs can be as a result of childhood sexual abuse. Um, again, masturbation depends on how, what, if they're just touching themselves and playing with themselves, or if you feel like it's actual masturbation. The one thing I want us all to recognize with this is that masturbation is a release 
it releases feel-good hormones, chemicals, whatever you want to call them, into our body. That's why people like it, right? So doing that activity in and of itself is something that children who are neglected or people who don't know how else to self-soothe, they'll do it. Hence why people talk about sex addiction and people being addicted to, you know, masturbating, watching tons of porn, having sex with multiple partners, all this stuff that they engage in to get that high, right? And it's been said, I forget the the research article, but anyway, they said like for some people who are addicts in general, sex addicts, alcoholics, drug addicts, they say that uh, masturbation is usually their first drug. And so just keep that in mind that maybe your children or your grandchildren were abused and this could, you know, you'd have to talk to them. You'd have to do uh, your own history taking as the best you can. You can get them into therapy so that they have support. UTIs can be a result of sexual abuse. Also, some people are just more predisposed for UTIs. I had one of my friends, Heidi, growing up, she got them all the time just because. Um, I don't know that there was ever any anything, you know, hurtful going on for her. It, her mom said she struggled with them as a kid. And so, it, you know, it's something to talk to a doctor about and get their take on it. Um, and if you do worry about their safety, there's nothing wrong with raising the red flag and, you know, talking to CPS or something like that to make sure that where they're at is okay and safe. Um, but the masturbation, I wouldn't necessarily worry about right up front. It could be part of their own natural curiosity. It could be their way of self-soothing. Like you said, the self-soothing is definitely part of it, especially since, you know, they were kind of neglected. You're aware of that. So all of this could make sense without sexual abuse happening, or that could be part of it. And we won't really know until we get them in to get the help that they need. So I would encourage you at the very least, because neglect is abuse and, I would at least see if you can get them into therapy or find some kind of treatment in school or something like that so that we can give them more support, okay? Now, the final comment on this is, I don't know if this is related, but I was also very sexualized as a kid and I masturbated from a young age. I was raped and sexually abused repeatedly before I entered elementary school. Now, this is going to be different, right? Because for this person, they're saying, yes, this did happen. I was abused. This happened before and that's what causes sexualization. Okay, and that's that's also very common. Um, the problem is that I learned to become sexually aroused in painful and abusive scenarios. Now I'm an adult and I still play those awful scenarios in my head to get aroused. And then I feel awful. For me, arousal and respectful love are really hard to put together. Of course, it's very common. Arousal for me is linked with pain, helplessness, shame, and anger. Is it possible to change that and feel loved, connected, and cared for while having sex? Or do I have to be damaged forever because of the people who harmed me and used me at such a young age? you can untangle or disconnect that connection. And the way that I've seen this happen in the past with my patients and many viewers, um, members of our community is through that trauma work, getting in to see a therapist and kind of managing that emotion dysregulation that comes up in the trauma responses, talking it through or doing EMDR, whatever kind of treatment modality works for you to process your trauma, that will untangle this. Now, does it mean it can go away completely? Maybe not, but there could be a healthy way for you to feel loved and connected, but also engage in a little, like I said, like the the person before might be aroused from a little bit of pain, you know, maybe scratching backs or something like that, right? We could find a way to allow ourselves to be aroused without it feeling terrible because it sounds like what's happening is you're having a trauma response and then you're feeling full of shame. And that's not something sex sexy for us, right? That you're like, Ugh, and then it's horrible. And so we want to disconnect that and we want to create healthy connections. And that will happen through that trauma work, which might be inner child work. Again, it might be EMDR, talk therapy, um, 
but just make sure you do it with a trauma-informed therapist or a trauma specialist. That will be best, okay? And I wish there was like a better answer for a quicker fix, but just know that you're not damaged forever, that you get to go. And also the Courage to Heal workbook could be really beautiful for you. I have it in my Amazon shops. Go to amazon.com forward slash shop forward slash Katie Morton. You'll find it there. Um, but that's a great resource and a great kind of guiding tool with you and your therapist to kind of walk through the healing process, okay? You're not damaged forever. It can and will get better. Okay, let's move on to question number three. Question number three says, hey, Katie, I have been in this weird headspace lately where I'm really confused and frustrated about how I actually feel. My therapist recently suggested I try medication for my depression and my anxiety since things haven't really been improving, but I almost don't feel like I need it because things haven't necessarily been getting worse either. Hmm. Okay. She had me do a pre-screening assessment call to get a referral to a psychiatrist, and they told me I was very high up on their scale of depressive symptoms, I guess. I know I'm not lying about my symptoms, but when I talk about it out loud, it seems so much worse than what's in my head. Interesting. Is it possible to just be so used to being depressed that I think I'm doing better than I am? Yes. Now, it's not that, you're, that you think you're doing better than you are. It's that your baseline, because you've been depressed for so long, your baseline is depression. Like for many of my patients, um, even my uh, generalized anxiety disorder patients, like the amount of anxiety they feel for their baseline is like what you and I maybe who don't have anxiety would think is like through the roof. And that's kind of you with depression. When you're like, today's a pretty good day. Your depression is probably still pretty intense. Like if I felt what you felt, I would be like, wow, I feel like total shit, right? Because I don't have those symptoms regularly. So I would notice the difference. But for some of us, especially, like I said, if we've been depressed for a really long time, I've even had uh, members of our community, friends and family members of mine say, I don't remember a time not feeling anxious, not feeling depressed. You might fall in that bucket where you're like, I don't even know what it's like to not feel depressed. But your therapist has recognized those symptoms in you. And when you say them out loud and they write them down, it's like off the charts. But to you, it's like every day, right? And and that's what's beautiful and difficult about being a human is we're so adaptive, right? As we have things happen to us, we kind of just get adjusted to them. We're like, well, I guess this is the norm. And yes, that is the norm, but it doesn't have to continue to be. And so I'm glad you're reaching out. I'm glad you're speaking up. It's it's possible that you've just been depressed for so long, you don't really remember what it's like to not be. And I want you to hold course and stay with it as you feel better. And I say that because sometimes feeling better can be uncomfortable because we're not used to it because we've been depressed for so long. We're like, I don't even remember what that's like, right? So hang in there. Know that being a little uncomfortable if we're feeling better overall, like it's easier to get out of bed, it's easier to shower, things don't feel like such a chore, that that's good. And stay the course because then we're building a different baseline from actual like lack of depression or a very low grade portion of it. And that's good, okay? There's a comment on this that I also feel really confused about how I feel. I find myself overanalyzing and trying to figure it out, which isn't really making things any better. I'm finally getting some improvement in my depressive symptoms through ketamine. Yay, ketamine treatment's amazing. But it kind of adds to the confusion because there are now better and worse days instead of just an endless series of miserable ones. I understand. How can I get a better grasp on how I am doing overall? I'm autistic and have alexithymia. Now, if you don't know what alexithymia is, it's really when we are unable to, or we have like a impaired ability to be aware and identify our feelings. So if we have alexithymia, it's almost like 
identifying what's going on inside is really, really hard. And I'm not surprised you're autistic and have alexithymia. Those have a really high comorbidity rate, meaning they happen together quite often. Now, um, how can I get a better grasp on how I'm doing overall? My best advice is to talk to your therapist. And I know some of you are thinking, but shouldn't I try to figure it out myself? It sounds like doing that is is honestly making it worse. Sometimes we can overanalyze and be so in our head and want to intellectualize that that in and of itself becomes kind of detrimental to us or painful in some way. And so it can be helpful to tell our therapist this is going on and to say, hey, every couple of months, would you mind checking in on me and my progress and telling me how you feel I'm doing? Any therapist is going to do that for you. I don't do it that often with my patients, like on the regular, but if they needed it, if I had a patient experiencing what you're experiencing, I would want to do that so that they could feel like things are moving forward. They could feel like, oh, things are improving, that I am actually, it just, it gives us a little more motivation and confidence in the whole treatment process. So let your therapist know and have them check in with you more often. So then you kind of know how you're really doing, especially if you feel confused about your feelings because of the alexithymia. It could be helpful for you to work with your therapist to kind of put words to that. Again, it might be really difficult for you to identify and agree, but at least knowing what your therapist is seeing from their perspective can be helpful. Okay. And that can kind of sometimes assuage the anxieties that come up with feeling like our feelings are confusing. Does that make sense? I hope so. Okay. Another person said, I can relate Outwardly, I seem to act and function, quote unquote, normally, but I still feel so depressed and anxious. I'm on medication and better than I was two or so years ago, but I feel that I could be better. My therapist just brought up the um, the thought that maybe I'm so comfortable saying that I'm depressed that I don't notice how much I'm improving and says I don't show a lot of outward symptoms that would suggest I'm as bad as I feel. What? That's weird. Wondering if we can self-sabotage because we feel we don't deserve to be better. Oh, could be, okay. And why do I feel so guilty about feeling this depressed? Thoughts? To be clear, I don't feel that she was diminishing my feelings at all. Okay, great. Just being cautious about what she sees. Thanks, Katie. Of course. Okay, now it is possible that you there's some shame or guilt or embarrassment in there, um, especially if there's any trauma in our background or any toxic family relationships, difficulties growing up, difficulty with confidence and who you think you are, we could definitely feel like we don't deserve to get better. I have a zillion patients over the years and a zillion members of our community who have said something to that effect to me off and on throughout treatment. And we can also get really comfortable feeling depressed that to not feel depressed feels worse, right? Like I said, it can be a little uncomfortable. We have to kind of push through. And that could be what you're butting up against is you're, you're getting better. And then your brain and body are like, what the fuck is this? I'm not used to this, uh, 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 you know, and it kind of stops us. And so you might just be sabotaging this or be so uncomfortable with the change that you're you're like resistant to it a little bit. Nothing's wrong with you. It's just part of the process. And when we get so used to or so comfortable in a certain state, not being in that state is going to feel uncomfortable. I know that sucks, but unfortunately, that's just that's part of life. That's part of the process. And it does get better. Just like we got comfortable with this way, we can get comfortable with a new way. We just have to acknowledge what's coming up, push ourselves, you know, maybe journaling, maybe talking about it, whatever's kind of helping you to process through and continue going down that road. Even if sometimes it feels like you're like white knuckling it, stay the course because it will get better. 
Um, okay, and why do I feel so guilty about feeling this depressed? I wonder, I'm curious, I wonder if as a child, if you were ever made to be, or made to think that like you're not good enough, you're not enough, you're a bad person, you're in the way, like you shouldn't be taking up space. This kind of, it it smells like that to me a little, you know, like all of this kind of has a little bit of that to it. Like I sabotage it. Maybe I don't deserve to get better. I'm comfortable being depressed. Maybe it's been going on for a long time and I feel guilty about feeling depressed. Like, like me taking up space, me taking up energy, me actually having an issue and struggling and needing help is somehow not okay, not acceptable for me to talk about it or be loud or reach out. That's hard too. I'm curious where this comes from. And you have those answers. Maybe just think about that a little bit. Have you ever been told or pushed to believe that about yourself? Do you ever feel like it's not okay to take up space? Do you ever feel like if you ask for help, you're taking it from someone else and you're just not worthy? Do you ever think you're not enough? You know, think about those things and you're not lovable. Something's broken. Do we have shame, like a shame spiral? Or is something broken inside of us? Is someone, you know, are we always going to have a tough time? People are never going to be nice. You know, what are we thinking about this world and our, our space and our place in it? Think about that. I think that will give you your answer. Okay. Okay. Let's move on to question number four. This question says, hi, Katie. How do you cope with finding out that your safe people growing up weren't so safe after all? Oof, I'm sorry. I experienced a little bit of Look at this minimization, you guys. This is a little bit of abuse. I'm going to rephrase that. I experienced abuse as a child, sexual, physical, and emotional. Possibly as a result, I grew up being kind of fearful of adults, rightfully so, and tried to limit how much they knew about me. Protective, I get it. That is until high school when I had a teacher who actually treated me like a human and seemed to be the only adult who really cared about my well-being. We became pretty close and he became a sort of mentor figure. Looking back now as an adult, I don't think I would have survived high school without him. This week, he was arrested for having a sexual relationship with a student. I have been spiraling since I heard the news, falling back into self-harm. What do you do when a person that you thought was part of your healing journey turns out to be even more proof that you can't trust anyone? I'm in therapy, but I'm not going to lie. This makes me question whether I should even trust my therapist. Okay. I'm so sorry. I do want to point out There's going to be a lot to unpack here, but first I want you to hear that two opposing beliefs or experiences or thought processes can exist at the same time. Meaning we can see that teacher in high school and we can say, you know, they were a mentor. They saved my life. I wouldn't have gotten through high school without them. And turns out now they're a dirt bag. Those two things can exist together. I know it feels like they can't. I know it's almost in the same realm that I would put, and I'm not comparing these. I'm just saying like as another example, I love my, um, let's say my dad, right? But also he's been very abusive and it's hurtful and toxic, right? Those two things can coexist. I know it's fucking uncomfortable. That's where therapy comes in to help us understand that these things that feel so, ugh, can exist together. That's life. It's complicated, right? It's not black or white. It's not in or out. It's not, I hate them because they abuse me. We can love them and they abused us. And those both, both of those things can be true. Like with this teacher 
The teacher was great. They were a mentor. I loved them. They were a supportive adult. Turns out they're, you know, a pedophile. I don't know if that, I don't want to say that because I don't know how old the student is, but I'm just saying, you know, they had a sexual relationship with a student, not appropriate. So they're kind of a creep, right? Those two things can exist. Okay. So I want to say that first. Now, I also have to unfortunately acknowledge the fact that when we grow up in an abusive household, sometimes we exhibit some symptoms of being more passive, more um, less confident. And people who are abusive, again, not saying this was a scenario with you, but I want people to know this. Um, some of the ways that we put ourselves out into the world when we've been abused as a child can make us in some ways be more vulnerable to abuse happening again. I talk about this at length in my book, Traumatized. Uh, there's audiobook, regular book. You can get it at your library. I don't have time to dig into all of that here, why that is, um, the th- ways that that happens and yada, yada, yada. But that does happen, right? We're more vulnerable to it happening again. Sucks, I know. But this teacher could have been kind of love bombing, could have been a little predatorial. And that ended up saving your life and nothing actually happened. So it was all fine. But sometimes that that does occur where children who've been abused will then find themselves with other adults in another abuse situation. Now you were very protective of yourself, which is great. Um, and I understand as a PTSD response, it was adaptive. This never ended up hurting you. And I would just keep reminding yourself of how this was different so that we don't fall down the spiral anymore. But the the trick, and back to the main question, okay, so those two things I felt were really important to acknowledge in case, you know, someone else was going through it wanted to give my full thoughts on it. But going back to the original question, how do you cope with finding out? We need to talk it through. We need to be in therapy process. And I know it's, you said it's making you question whether or not you should trust your therapist. For right now, I want you to tell your brain, for right now, I just need to trust my therapist. I need to at least talk this through. Okay. We just need to talk this out. We need a safe place to, to vent about this. And do we have any evidence? When we have these thoughts, these, uh, self-protective PTSD trauma response thoughts, we have to check our facts. Do we have any evidence to support that our therapist is not trustworthy? And I'll even challenge you further. With this teacher in high school, did we have any evidence that they shouldn't have been trustworthy? Did they ever do anything harmful or hurtful to us? If the answer is no, essentially your relationship isn't sullied. It was, they were safe for you. Nothing bad ever happened. You trusted your gut with that person and they ended up being okay, right? I know that's hard again to hold those two ooh, things, but it might be what you need to do here to get through this and to, to process it, to cope with what you found out. It's essentially someone's fall from grace. We can be very disappointed. We can um, have a tough time coming to terms with the fact that they're human and they're fallible and they've done something bad that we don't approve of, you know, we, that can be its own process, but that doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to cost you that healthy, helpful relationship that you happen to have, right? People are not all good or all bad. We don't know if this was this only time this happened. We don't know what was going on. I'm not condoning the behavior at all, by the way, very inappropriate. I don't know if it was someone under 18, I'd assume it was. So that's, not acceptable. That's, you know, really sexual abuse. Um, so I don't, you know, I don't know what was going on, but we can't let that solely your relationship. Okay. Now, 
Um, that's how we cope. We need to talk it out. We need to check our facts on these other thoughts. But I can't trust therapists. Can't trust this person. Can't trust that. You know, we don't have any evidence to support that. Let's just check our evidence. And then I would encourage you to maybe start on your own. This might be safer to do on your own versus with your therapist. It's just like considering what a quote unquote safe person looks like. What characteristics do they have? What are things that we're looking for? We might have trouble with this. So maybe instead of safe, just say like not shitty person. Someone that you could like, I don't know, get a ride from like once. You know, what 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 would that person have, okay? Think about how they would look, how they would act, what their lifestyle would be, how they'd interact with you, things they would say to you, things they would not. You know, sometimes it can help to say what they are not first and then we can fill in what they would be. Let's spend some time in that because that might help us discern in the future or with our therapist, like who's okay, who's not okay. And also understanding the slowness with which we can get to know people and let people in versus feeling like it's all or nothing. That's very unboundary and can be very dangerous, especially if we come from an abusive household. We want to talk about that and learn about that. And that's something you can talk with your therapist about. I've talked about it on other podcasts as well, just like the layers of getting to know someone like what are you okay with the public knowing? What are you okay with like a casual friend knowing? What are you okay with a, you know, a, I'd call it like a light friend and then a, a really deep friendship, you know, just considering that. That can all be helpful for you to take time to just think through and process. Um, yeah. Oh, I hit the microphone. Sorry. But I'm so sorry that that happened. That sucks. But don't let that ruin yours. These two things can exist together. Okay. Let's move on to question number five. This question says, hey, Katie, I'm putting try to put this into the right words, but the world is a shit show. I know. I feel that too. Most people are selfish, manipulative, mean. I think you get the picture. Most of the time, it's really hard living in this world. I often feel like I can't stand it anymore. It's uh, it's like it's taking my breath away and eating me up inside. All my life, I never felt like I belonged anywhere. I always felt different. Don't worry. I'm not suicidal. I just don't know how to live in this world. Yes, my OCD is out of control at the moment, and it makes it especially hard. But I feel this way even when I'm quote unquote better. How can life become more manageable with everything that's going on and with the bad people everywhere? I have a challenge. Okay, so love this question. I think a lot of people feel this way. I challenge all of you in the comments below in the next week or so. I want you to write down, leave a comment with two nice things you saw someone do in the wild open a door, that counts. Um, Saying morning, that counts. Anything that's just kind. Oh, you dropped that, that counts. Anything like that. Oh, let me hang up your coat for you. Oh, you go in front of me in the car or walking through a door, anything like that. Notice some of the kindness in people because here is what is important to remember is that we have what's called, I think it's called the negativity bias. You can look it up and there's tons of neurological research about this. It's essentially the fact that our brain likes to hone in on the negative. And I believe, and I, I believe research supports this, but I haven't read it thoroughly enough to tell you. I believe we have a negativity bias because that helps us survive. If our brain is, we know our brain, right? is always looking into our environment for threats, threats to our emotional safety and our physical safety. It is looking, it is on the watch all the time because then it can prepare us, right? Amygdala can fire, we can go into fight, flight, freeze. What do we do to keep ourselves safe? It gets us ready for that. So it's important. It behooves us for our ability to continue our life 
to look into our environment and to focus on the negative things, the scary things, the overwhelming things, okay? Now, when we push back against that and we're forced to try to find some nice things, some sweetness between people, some kindness between strangers, maybe we see people hug, how cute. Maybe we see friends giggling over a cup of coffee. Those are nice things. People walking, holding hands, someone petting a puppy. Things are cute in life. People are kind. There is love out there. There is sweetness out there. Of course, there's shitty people. We can't control other people and we can't let their inability to see the beauty in life and act accordingly. We can't allow that to derail us and make us feel bad, right? We don't have control over them. We only have control over us. So my challenge is look for those sweet things and put those in the comments because that's how life becomes more manageable because we, what we focus on is what we grow, right? If I'm focusing on the negative, it seems to get bigger and bigger and bigger and overwhelming and we feel overwhelmed. But if I focus on the positive, I focus on the little sweetness, the little nice things, like I'm doing this artist way workbook. And one of the things that um, we were supposed to do is called touchstones. And you're supposed to come up with some of your favorite things. And I just closed my eyes and it was so fun to write those things out. And some of it even made me tearful because like, you know, my grandma um, has passed away. My papa passed away. My dad passed away. And a lot of it was like my grandma used to play with my hair during church. Oh, it's one of my favorite things. Also, we recently moved to Texas. When you drive along highways here in the spring, there's blue bonnets blooming on the side of the road and they're beautiful. I love that. I also love my feet in, you know, cold, fresh cut grass. Oh, what a good feeling. Um, you know, there's so many things, the smell of like a summer rain on a hot sidewalk. Oh, such a good thing. If we look for those touchstones, we look for those positives, we look for those sweet bits. That's what will grow. That's what we're feeding with our brain. I know that sounds kind of weird and woo woo, but neurologically, all of what I'm saying is supported through research. So that's how it's more manageable. Let's focus in on some of those things and share them in the comments because then we can we can love on other people's things that they love, things they saw. We can go, oh, so cute, so sweet. Let's share in that, okay? Or share them on, tag me in them on Instagram and I'll reshare them to my stories. Tag me in yours so then I can automatically add it to mine. Okay, let's move on to question number six. It says, hey, Katie, can you talk about internal family systems and how all of the parts, the exiles, and other things work. I'm in trauma therapy, and I have complex PTSD, EMDR, and internal family systems has been so helpful, but sometimes it makes me feel crazy when I try to explain it to someone else. Also, how do exiles come up? So far, my therapist and I haven't had one pop up yet, but there are tons of protector parts in there. LOL. Thanks for all you do. Okay. Now, I have to be honest. I do not specialize in internal family systems, but I do know a little bit about it and enough to take some notes so that I can share what I know, okay? So it's important to know that exiles are the parts that um, of in our life, uh, let's, let me back up. Let's start by saying that overall, internal family systems is like a psychological approach. So I mean, it's a, it's a type of therapy that identifies what I call, I guess, like sub-personalities, right? So like little parts of ourselves within ourselves. okay? Now, these parts of ourselves can be these like wounded parts or some painful emotions like shame, right? We talk about shame a lot. And certain parts can try to protect those protectors. They can try to protect us from the pain of the wounded parts of ourselves, right? So it's like almost like, you know, for instance, an example of, I guess a good example of parts would be, you know how when you're 
this might help you explain it to people. You know how uh, when you're trying to make a decision about something in your life and there are like two different thoughts coming in, like, oh, that would be great. I could totally do that. Wait, 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 wait. No, no, no. Remember? No, but think about financially. We don't think we can do that, but that'd be so much fun. But no, no, no. So that responsible, what I call like the responsible thoughts in my head could be what you call a protector part. It's protecting me from this one. This one that's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Be impulsive, act crazy, right? But all of these parts make up who I am and they're all different parts of myself. Okay, does that make sense? I hope so. So anyways, the these different sub parts or these subcategories of your person, they can conflict with uh, different with each other, right? One can be like really spontaneous and the other's like, no, 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 we have to be organized and planned. You know, it's almost, um, I, I think even Inside Out kind of does a good job where the like the different emotions in her brain, like they fight it, fight it out and they don't always agree with one another. So anyways, the goal of internal family systems is really, well, it really focuses on healing these wounded parts, and restoring kind of like a balance. The goal is not to get rid of any parts or that certain parts aren't okay or are okay. There's none of that. It's like we can all work together without fighting it out all the time. So we don't feel like that internal battle all the time or feel so uncomfortable, okay? Now, exiles are the parts that are in pain. Those are the, you know, like the shame, the fear, the trauma that we had in childhood. Um, those are the that's what that means so usually these parts that are in pain don't come up right away from what i understand again i do not do internal family systems i've read about it because i wanted to put a video together about it that's still in the works now so these exiles are things that we don't think are okay they're too dangerous they're too intense that we think it means something's wrong with us right it's all that fear-based stuff all that shame-filled shitty like shit talking those are those exiles and those tend to come out later. And I believe, again, not everybody's going to be the same, so don't judge your process, but it would be, it would make sense to me that as we work through those protectors, that's when the exiles come out because the protectors protect us, protect our, our painful parts, the parts of ourselves that are wounded and hurting. The protectors have to move out of the way first. Okay. And so that's kind of, I don't know if any of that language kind of helps you explain it more, but I think um, and just for random like information, I think it was Robert Schwartz, uh, Richard Schwartz. I was close. Richard Schwartz. Uh, he was the therapist who came up with internal family systems. I think it was like developed in the eighties, so it's relatively new-ish type of um, therapy, but it can be incredibly beneficial. And so I just want to make sure that I answered all your questions. Okay. So that's kind of how I, I think internal family systems work. And I saw a member of our community who's also a member of our Patreon community leave a beautiful comment on this where she was like, she explained how she tells people what internal family systems is. And I believe, let me pull it up because I don't know it off the top of my head, but it was something to the effect of like, um, that she says, you know, we have those two parts of yourself, like, wait, should I? Oh, I don't know. Like when you're trying to make a decision. Um, okay, here it is. It says, when I explain it to people, I'll say, you know how sometimes you have a part of you that wants to do A and another part that wants to do B? IFS is learning about those different parts and healing. Most people have understood that. I love it. So yeah, so that could be helpful too. But I just hope that that helps you better explain it. It can be incredibly healing. I think part of it is because then we're not only able to identify and acknowledge the wounded parts, but we also can be 
we can acknowledge and be thankful for those protectors and also understand when they've kind of gotten in our way of feeling the things we needed to feel, right? It's kind of, I feel like it promotes self-love. So I, I'm really, I, I do really like it. And I hope that, that helped answer all your questions. Okay. Moving on to question number seven. This question says, hey, Katie, I wonder what type of questions I'm allowed to ask my therapist. Hmm. Good question. She's very professional. And sometimes when I ask her if she's okay, she would tell me that I shouldn't care. Interesting. And that she's here to help me, not to talk about herself. Okay, that's fair. A little harsh, but okay. Also, when I apologize to her, she never says, it's okay. She would just ignore it. So she doesn't even acknowledge the apology. Interesting. She wouldn't even apologize when I told her that a certain thing she said was upsetting. And hmm, is this normal? Are therapists trained to not interact much? I really like her and I feel really comfortable discussing my worries with her, but sometimes I feel like she hates me or I'm talking like a robot. This is interesting. Now, different styles of therapy. I don't know what type of therapy she practices, but that could be why she's not giving you much feedback. If she falls into the more psychoanalytic, it's called the psychoanalytic type of therapist, they're not supposed to give you anything, like no emotional reaction. I don't know if she's like that. But that could be why she doesn't acknowledge that kind of thing. And she's kind of cold in some ways. Now, some people like that. And it means that then there's no um, muddying of the emotional waters in therapy because they're not giving anything to it, right? It's all our stuff that we get to bring in, if that makes sense. It's almost like a clean slate. So a lot of people can prefer that. But I'm just going to give you my perspective. I'm not a psychoanalytic fan. I do not practice it. There might be maybe like a tool that I've used over the time that is from there, but I'm not a big fan of it. It takes a really long time. I think the relationship is more important. It's not even really widely practiced. I know in Europe it is still more than it is in the state, but neither here nor there. Now, questions you can ask your therapist. You can ask your therapist anything, but I can be, I want to tell you that therapists aren't going to tell you much about their private life because that could muddy the waters of your therapeutic relationship. And that's really valuable and really important. Like, let's say your therapist was a, a Christian or Mormon or Jewish and you were atheist or you were a different type of religion. You could think that then she's not going to, he or she's not going to understand you, not going to get that. And we can judge based on having that little bit of information, right? Also, we could find out our therapist is married or has kids or doesn't or is a cat person versus a dog person. And it sounds silly, but these things affect the way that we interact with others and the way that we think, especially when it's a therapist. And so, you know, that might be why she's not offering anything. So you can ask her, but she's not going to probably tell you anything personal. Um, I would, I mean, I'm more human than the way that she's interacting with you. Like if you asked me if I'm okay, the, the therapist and me, Again, I wouldn't answer your question because it's not about me, but I would say, I'm curious what makes you think I'm not okay or what made you ask that question? Are you concerned for me? You know, I would I would be more curious about your motivation behind that question, which I know is such a therapist answer. And I know you're like, Katie, that's so annoying. That's a therapist. But I wouldn't, I mean, what she said sounds a little harsher than mine, but very similar, right? It's not about her. her the therapy session you have with her isn't about her. It's about you. And that might make you uncomfortable, but we should talk about that instead of, you know, focusing on other things. Now, the fact that you say sorry and she doesn't say it's okay. See, part of me, when you said, when you apologize, if you did that a lot, because I'm an over-apologizer, which means I'm an ex-people pleaser, I'm doing all, you know, I would want to dig into that if I thought that was happening and that would be a good opportunity. And I probably wouldn't say it's okay. And then I'd ask you how that felt. 
But the fact that she's not doing that, I don't really understand what the goal is there. The fact that you feel really comfortable with her is wonderful. I might bring this up and say, hey, you know, sometimes I feel like I'll try to check in on you. I understand I can't know anything about your life, but I just don't know, you know, if it's even okay for me to, and then I want to apologize and you never say it's okay. So I don't know when I've overstepped, you know, it's okay to bring this up. It, It might improve the relationship. Your therapist might say something like, oh, I didn't mean for it to come across that way. It's just not time. This time isn't about me. It's about you. And you had no need to apologize. You know, this was fine. Then I have more context. So it's never wrong to bring that stuff up. Okay. The relationship is really important here and cultivating that is what's key. And so bringing up anything that you're thinking, concerned about worries, weirdness, anything like that is always fine. The one thing that's not going to happen is your therapist is not going to tell you about their private life. And if they do, it's not appropriate. The only time it's appropriate is when it actually helps with your treatment, meaning I'm disclosing, we call it disclosures. I'm disclosing a little bit about my life or my situation to help you move along, right? I'm going to share a story about my life because I think there's a learning in there for you. Okay. So that's the only reason. Okay. Let's move on to question number eight. This question says, hey, Katie, how can I best work with my therapist to reduce the extreme amount of rejection that I feel at the end of each session? I think it started off as separation anxiety, but it's developed into a feeling of severe rejection, like she can't wait to get rid of me and that she'd rather not ever see me again. Have you ever felt this way before? I'm always curious when people have kind of what I would call an overreaction. Again, I've said this before, but I'll say it again. That's not a bad word. That's just an indicator that something's going on, right? You're overreacting. So this has triggered something. When has this happened before? Has anybody ever left you somewhere? Did you struggle when you were at school, your parents dropping you off or even getting on the bus? Was that really stressful? Were you neglected? Do you feel like push-pull of people? Have you ever cut friends off randomly? You're like, I can't trust them. Uh, Just tell me, has that happened before? Let's think about that. Okay, now, um, I get a lot of intrusive thoughts about how she secretly hates me and how I'm disgusting to look at and to be around. So of course she can't wait for me to leave. I dissociate off and often leave her office while still in a dissociative state. And I have no idea how to even manage to get where I'm going to next. It's nothing sort of a miracle that I haven't been in an accident yet. Oh no, you've got to be careful. Oh no. Okay. We'll talk about that. I've experienced severe depersonalization and derealization episodes following leaving her office. We've tried approaching this in therapy, but I immediately get overwhelmed. A tsunami of shame and embarrassment comes over me and I dissociate. We've tried different approaches. Her giving me like a countdown saying, for example, we're getting close to the end of session. Okay, 10 minutes, five minutes, etc. That did not help at all. We've tried grounding techniques. It did nothing to ease the situation. We've tried staying on easy topics throughout the session to see if it's the heavy stuff like severe child. Oh, here we go. Severe childhood emotional neglect, physical and emotional abuse. That's triggering me. But even if we just talk for 90 minutes straight about how I like to knit or go indoor climbing and listen to music, as soon as it gets close to the end of session, I freak out. We're now at the point where she's telling me we need to try seeing each other only twice a month because I can't possibly be getting anything out of the sessions when I'm in so much emotional distress throughout. I don't necessarily disagree, but let's talk about this. Following our latest session, I became suicidal and had to call the psychiatric emergency team at my local hospital. And they had to talk me out of actually killing myself. This is really getting out of hand. She's told me over and over and over again, she's not rejecting me. She still cares about me and she only wants what's best for me. Short of telling me that she'll never leave, I feel like she's done everything within her power to help me through this. Do you have any helpful tips? Is there a method we haven't tried yet or am I just doomed? Thanks for all you do and for this community, I greatly appreciate it. Of course, okay. 
who that did get out of hand, right? I hate that feeling. It's and your therapist probably feels very similarly. But clearly, I've said this, I said this last a couple weeks ago, it has nothing to do with your therapist. Okay, let's just keep that in mind. It says nothing to do with your therapist. What is happening here? I'm, I'm just hypothesizing. I believe that your therapist represents your parent that wasn't there. So we have put her in our little parent void in our life. And we're like, perfect, because my parents sucked. They were abusive. They were neglectful. Um, it was severe. I could never count on them. And we probably could have had a trauma bond with our parent. A trauma bond is when we bond with our abuser in the hopes that, first of all, it can be the only way we feel like we can get love and we don't really understand another version of it. It also can be done because we're hoping that if we connect with them, they won't hurt us anymore, right? We could have formed a trauma bond with our abusers. Therefore, you know, we have this strong, unhealthy trauma bond with our therapist because we're replacing them. Remember, this is kind of, we're treating our therapist like they're our parent, except they're offering us things that we've never had before, which has made that connection very confusing and very emotionally charged. Um, we might even have some attachment issues where we have kind of an anxious avoidant style of attachment. We push, pull, push, pull. It could be disorganized where we just, we don't even know. We feel very dysregulated. You'd have to talk to your therapist to figure out maybe what attachment style she thinks is yours. There, uh, I think there might even be tests online, but I don't know how, you know, how good they are. Um, but anyways, that could have all happened. And because we never, you know, we haven't had a chance to heal that, going into therapy and having someone actually care about us and show up and be consistent is triggering all the things that we ever wanted. And so my thoughts about this are, number one, we need to jump into the inner child work. We need to understand what little you thought, felt, all that stuff. We need to get in, in contact with her or him. We need to have those conversations so that we can start to process what they went through. We also need to work on, because that inner child work is going to be key. Do that first. I have an inner child uh, workshop on my website. Just go to katiemorton.com. It's there. There's live streams that are recorded so you can access them. There's downloadable worksheets. They don't expire. The links are just YouTube videos that we uploaded through from Zoom. You're good. That inner child work is going to be key because what the goal is here is then to with love, remove your therapist from that wound, that void, that parent void, and fill it with other things that we can offer ourselves, which is what we'll do in that inner child work, where we actually offer to younger us some support, some love, some understanding. I watched this video. Um, I, I meant to talk, I meant to share it, but I couldn't figure out how because this other person had stitched it already. So I'll pull it up and, and find a way to share it. But on Oprah, she had this uh, therapist come on and he did a little inner child kind of, obviously it's Oprah, so it was like from the 80s, but he did an inner child kind of um, healing visualization. He had everybody close their eyes. And what he had them do was really beautiful. He said, I want you to close your eyes and I want you to imagine you, your first memory of you as a kid. Okay, get it in your head. What, what, did, what did you look like? What did he or she look like? What were you wearing? Do you remember your home growing up? What did it kind of look like? And he kind of walks you through so you can put yourself back in that child space. And he's like, "Do you can you tell me a little bit about, maybe think about what he or she's thinking, feeling? Do you remember what was going on in your house? You know, and he goes through like, maybe your mom was yelling, maybe your dad was yelling, maybe somebody's frustrated, you know. Anyway, he walks through all this and he has adult you walk up to child you and say, Look, come with me. I'm going to take you out of here. You're important. I love you just the way you are. 
and you scoop them up and you walk away. And um, and I guess if you fight, if the child you doesn't want to go, then you adult you says, well, don't worry. I'll come back and visit you all the time because I want you to know that I see you and I hear you and I love you just as you are. And oh my God, you guys, I started crying and you're watching people in the audience, everybody's crying. They're visualizing this and then you're like holding little you. Um, and you imagine, I mean, I had like white hair as a little kid and these little bangs. And I just remember, I can just visualize, huh, I'll share it. But that work is going to be so powerful and so important for you to be able to rescue little you and tell little you all the things that you wished you could have heard to offer that up. Because right now we're trying to get it from our therapist and that's fucking our shit up because then we don't want to leave. It's it's like, it's a it's not only a little separation anxiety, it's attachment. We have all this stuff flaring up that's getting in the way of therapy actually benefiting us at all. And I'm not saying you should end therapy, but I think we should kind of pivot and feel free to use my inner child workshop, like, you know, have your therapist look at it, or you can get some workbooks on Amazon, go amazon.com forward slash shop forward slash Katie Morton. I have some of my faves in there. There's a lot of ways we can work on this with them. Let's get into that because until we do that, we cannot pull her out of this like wound from our parents because that's what's triggering all this stuff. Okay. I hope that makes sense. I hope I didn't get too far off topic. (laughs) Okay. Final question. Question number nine says, Katie, I was wondering, have you ever had a client lie to you all the time and how do you deal with it? I have noticed myself lying to my therapist and I often, or my therapist often, and I want to stop. Any tips on how to do that? Thanks for all that you do, of course. And someone commented, said, Katie's talked about this before, and I have, but um, I haven't talked about how to stop doing it. So yes, people lie to me all the time. I don't take it personally. It has nothing to do with me. It's usually because it's either shame-based, guilt-based, embarrassment-based. I mean, also I deal with eating disorders, so it can be eating disorder-based, like you're lying because your eating disorder is telling you to lie. Um, Again, not about me. It's about what's going on with my patient. It's up to me to figure out what that is and to ask a lot of questions and to dig into it and to let them come around to it on their own time because sometimes we're just not ready. Like even in my own therapy the other day, I didn't really lie, but I omitted. I lied by omission, you guys. Because she asked a question that I wasn't really ready to answer. And it was the week after I told her, I said, I kind of lied last week. And she was like, huh? And I said, yeah, you, I, I forget what the question exactly was. But I said, I only gave you like part of it because I just wasn't really ready. I think, you know, I think this was a bigger issue than I let on. I said, it just kind of took me by surprise. She's like, that happens. That's okay. There's nothing personal. And if you feel able to tell your therapist, hey, I find myself lying, because it's not about the lie, it's about the why. The why behind the lie, right? We we lie as a way to protect ourselves. We lie because sometimes a lie is easier than the truth. We have to figure out why you're lying. I know there's so, I don't know if it's just, it's probably childhood, but it's our whole lives we're taught like lying is so bad and blah, blah. And then we have shame about it. So it's like compounding shame and guilt and embarrassment. And so I just encourage you to be curious about why you're lying and what it would mean to come clean. Like, can we imagine if you just went in and told your therapist, hey, I lied about this, this, and this, and I'm sorry, and I don't know why. And I want to figure out why I'm doing this because I hate that I'm doing it. Like, what if we just did it? What would that look like? What do you think your therapist would say? How would they respond? How would you respond? Let's go down that path a little bit. Let's figure it out because we have to figure out why we're doing it before we try to stop. We can't just stop because it exists for a reason. We're doing it for a reason. So let's figure out what that reason is. And that inevitably will help you stop doing it. Um, But a lot of it, I think, has to do with like the shame, blame, guilt, embarrassment. 
sometimes the lie is easier, but I don't know what it is with you. Um, but just know that we don't take it personal. If I got paid extra every time a client lied, I'd be, you know, I don't know, in the Caribbean, retired, or in Hawaii, actually sounds lovely, retired, make, had have millions of dollars. Um, but we don't get paid extra. We're just used to it because there's a reason. And it's not easy to talk to someone about all the hard stuff. Okay. Thank you all so much for sending your questions. Thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. Thank you for sharing this podcast. It really does help. I love you all. Do your homework. Have a wonderful rest of your week and I'll see you next time. Bye.